Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate-in-chief. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Fertility and Sterility On Air. This month, we're going to talk about the May 2021 issue. If you're interested, volume 115, number five. We have a really exciting group of articles spanning quite a number of topics in reproductive medicine. So we'll get started right away. Micah and Eve, wonderful to have you here with me again today. Nice to see you both. Good morning, Kurt. Good morning, Micah. And I just thought I would say congratulations, Kurt, to our new editor-in-chief of Fertility and Sterility. And I speak, um, I think, on behalf of so many people that we are very excited to have you in this role. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Good morning to both of you, and I echo Eve's congratulations to Kurt. Kurt, we are very happy to have you and excited to see where you're going to lead the journal. So I'm going to dive right in. We have views and reviews to start off the May edition of Fertility and Sterility. This is a fabulous views and reviews led by editorial editor Jacques Donez titled Fertility Preservation in Men and Women. Where are we in 2021? Are we rising to the challenge? He sets the stage for the four articles he solicited by noting that in 2017, he published a paper in which his team reported that the worldwide demand for fertility preservation for oncologic, non-oncologic, and personal reasons had increased dramatically, and meeting that demand would prove to be a major challenge for our field in the coming years. Four years later, he asks, are we rising to that challenge? I'll give you his answer at the end. The first article is from Kobo and the team from EVRMA discussing oocyte freezing for cancer, endometriosis, and the personal choice to delay childbearing. They present a wide range of data from their extensive experience. They note, as we know, that the age at which the oocytes are vitrified is the key predictor in future success. They recommend that women with endometriosis have oocyte vitrification prior to surgery for endometriomas due to the decline in ovarian reserve after ovarian surgery and they report an experience of a 40 to 70% cumulative live birth rate in women less than 35, as long as they have at least 10 oocytes. In the second article, Domans and colleagues from five leading European fertility preservation centers present what is to date the largest published series of 285 ovarian transplantation cases. They discuss that the ideal patient to have this done should have the ovaries removed before they're 35, with a realistic five-year survival and at least a 50% chance of ovarian insufficiency following their treatments. Overall, 26% of these 285 transplantation cases went on to have a live birth, roughly evenly split between unassisted and IVF pregnancies after transplantation. Ovarian tissue cryopreservation after exposure to chemotherapy actually had higher rates of pregnancy than match controls which might be consistent with some recent evidence that some types of chemo may actually decrease follicular activation and provide a protective effect. This was, of course, not seen in patients who had alkylating agents. I think there's an article that Eve will be discussing later on with the uh, mechanism of alkylating agents. In the third article, Telfer and Anderson from Edinburgh and Copenhagen review the current status of IVM and IVG of follicles from ovarian tissue when transplantation is contraindicated. They discuss work in mice that has actually led to the growth completely in vitro of primordial follicles to mature follicles and resulted in live birth. They give an in-depth review of the technical challenges of in vitro activation in human primordial follicles, 3D tissue support, and maturation signaling. Finally, Brannigan and colleagues from Northwestern discuss the challenges of male fertility preservation. While freezing sperm is straightforward for most postpubertal men, Research into testicular tissue cryopreservation remains experimental and lags behind ovarian tissue cryopreservation. They discuss a wide range of research from testicular transplantation to sperm cell transplants to pluripotential stem cells. Overall, this is a very in-depth and fascinating set of articles from the world's foremost experts on fertility preservation, 
Not only do they present their experience on the topic, they also present new data that has never before been published. Donez concludes that yes, indeed, we have made progress in just four short years. The job is by no means done, but this cutting edge research from this group of authors offer the potential for novel therapeutics and the hope for patients wanting fertility preservation. Micah, that's really terrific. Does he give any inkling on where we're gonna go in the future? I think each of these articles does. Uh, Donez himself does not, but a lot of these articles discuss things that are very cutting edge, uh, especially some of the stuff on the on the male side where I think the, the research has lagged behind, such as the uh, stem cell transplant and ovarian tissue transplant, which are both still obviously experimental. That was a fantastic section, Micah. I'm gonna jump ahead in the journal and cover that article that we talked about on fertility preservation. This article is titled, Ovaries of Patients Recently Treated with Alkylating Agent Chemotherapy Indicate the Presence of Acute Follicle Activation, Elucidating Its Role Among Other Proposed Mechanisms of Follicle Loss. This article was written by Daniel Shai with senior author Jor Moreau from Tel Aviv, Israel. This was a study that looked at 96 women ages 15 through 39 who underwent ovarian tissue cryopreservation for fertility preservation. Of these 96 women, 48 women had chemotherapy prior to OTC, and of these 48, 24 had exposure to alkylating agents, and 24 had chemotherapy, but no alkylating agents. And this was compared to a control group of 48 women with known malignancy who underwent OTC without exposure to chemotherapy. The main patient age was 27.8, and there were no differences in ages among the three groups. The findings of the study are consistent with our understanding of the impact of chemotherapy in the ovary, but there are some new and interesting findings that the author report. We know that alkylating agents lead to the loss of primordial follicles, but we don't know the exact mechanism of how this occurs. And this study focuses on the time-related changes in different follicle populations, as well as measures of follicle activation, apoptosis, stromal fibrosis, and neovascularization in ovarian cortical tissue harvested from cancer patients in the, in the immediate short term following clinical administration of alkylating and non-alkylating chemotherapy. I think the most remarkable finding of the study was that ovaries from patients exposed to alkylating agents had significant loss of primordial follicles that was accompanied by a burst of follicle activation. And what this follicle activation showed was that primordial follicle loss is really as a result of the activation of these follicles and then the subsequent burnout of those follicles. The recruitment of follicles out of the dormant state leads to higher rates of follicle loss as they are no longer dormant and they are no longer protected. The generation of new growing follicles was occurring alongside the death of exposed growing follicles. The third proposed mechanism of lost stromal fibrosis was shown to occur after the loss of follicles and not as a cause of follicle loss. Overall, more research is needed to best understand how follicles are lost so that therapies can be created to help protect and preserve primordial follicles. But this study, I think, gave us a really nice insight into the exact mechanisms by which this happens. Thanks, Eve. That's terrific. I also understand that you had the inkling from this month's journal. Sure. The inkling from this journal is called Resection of a Uterine Septum in a Normal Uterus. Whoa, Nellie. <laughs> I love the title. The inkling was written by Arthur Ludwin, Mark Trollis, Paula Bagavath, and Steve Lindheim. It was an interesting piece that challenges dogma. The piece starts out by defining dogma, derived from the Greek word dokine, meaning to seem, and defined as something held as an established opinion or tenet put forth as authoritative, adequate grounds. The authors go on to say that, that a long-standing reproductive surgical dogma surrounds the septate uterus and that correction of the septum will improve reproductive outcome. Prevalence of septum is 2 to 3% in the unselected and infertile population, but 15% in women with a history of miscarriage. Classification for uterine septum vary among the different societies, which makes rigorous study really challenging. As a result of this, many older studies have propagated uterine metroplasty dogma that correction of the septum improves outcomes. The TRUST study 
was a randomized control trial that showed no benefit from metroplasty in comparison to expectant management in 12 months of observation. I found this really shocking. Furthermore, in the subgroup of women with a history of pregnancy loss, metroplasty resulted in higher rates of subsequent miscarriage compared with a non-surgical group, 58% versus 40%. The conclusion of the TRUST study was that metroplasty should not be performed as it failed to increase live birth rates or decrease the rates of pregnancy loss or preterm birth compared with expected management. The authors of this paper dive in and they really elucidate the underlying problems with the TRUST study, and that is that the diagnosis of uterine septum was not uniform, nor was it well-defined, and likely included multiple patients with arcuate uteri that may not have actually required surgery. The author of this paper argued that the benefits of hysteroscopic metroplasty in those with a true uterine septum remain unanswered, but they state, whoa, Nellie, not so fast. Don't change dogma based on the trust study. An RCT with a strict definition of a septate uterus is needed in order to make a true determination of best practice. And I have to say, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that the diagnosis of septum should really be restricted to those that have a deep uterine septum that that bifurcates the uterine cavity and not a slight indentation at the top. And I think that probably the inclusion of those more arcuate cavities really skewed the results of this trial. It really is amazing how much we learn about the surgery that we do or the surgery that we shouldn't do. And that's a nice segue into the ASRM pages in this month's journal, where we have a couple committee opinions. And the first one is a committee opinion titled, The Role of Tubal Surgery and the Error of Assisted Reproductive Technology. As we all know, the committee opinions reflect a lot of work by some very smart people. They review some very diverse information. This opinion goes over many aspects of tubal surgery, including diagnosis and therapy, and some of the intricacies thereof. This article is a very good resource, and you should read it for yourself, but there are some findings that I found interesting and useful. I perhaps didn't put this so eloquently. When you're looking at the comparison between tubal surgery and IVF, it's important to tell the patient that most IVF pregnancies, even studies that look at cumulative pregnancies, happen within the first year. Whereas it's actually quite the opposite with tubal surgery. Tubal surgery might result in a higher cumulative number of pregnancies, but the delivery time is quite substantially longer. The opinion also notes that there's no adequate trials comparing pregnancy rates for tubal surgery with IVF. However, if you have to look at the best evidence, it's pretty clear that IVF does seem to have the higher per cycle pregnancy rate. So many of the other recommendations may seem intuitive when you read them. For example, that HSG is still the first line test to assess tubal patency and treatments like tubal cannulization, laparoscopic fimbrioplasty, neosalpingostomy do have a place in treatment somewhere but they're usually left for women with no other infertility factors, otherwise a very good prognosis, and usually are very young. So congratulations to the strong work with Alan Penzias and his practice committee members for another informative and well-researched committee opinion. The second two articles in ASRM pages are kind of slightly different committee opinions. They're guidance on how to use social media and reproductive medicine. Well, this type of article is more of a summary of opinions and common sense and guidelines that lead to recommendations rather than a review of the medical literature. However, some of the recommendations that you might find useful include that care should be taken when you use social media to communicate with your patients, because some patients might think it's the only way your office will actually communicate, and that simply might not be the case, even if it is the preferred method of communication for some. So if your office is using social media liberally, your office needs to be very diligent so as to maintain good communication. If you're using social media, also be very careful to protect private information. As we all know, posts on the internet can last forever. It's also recommended that practices have formal policies on how and when to use social media. And of course, practices and clinics should discourage employees from interacting with patients on their own personal accounts. I used to worry about patients getting and abusing my cell phone number. Now I have to worry about them getting on my social media accounts. The third article has guidance for the use of text, mail, and video communication and practices devoted to reproductive medicine. 
clearly this mode of communication is increasing in our practices as well as in our lives. Similar concerns are important to consider, such as patient privacy and compliance with HIPAA. While some practices might have been tentative to use this type of communication in the past, like my practice, this recent pandemic has moved to a new age. I think we're going to use electronic communication a lot more going forward, and please let this document serve as a guidance to best practices that ensure safe and secure electronic communication, including the most novel, which I think is, which is the use of video consent. So these might not be the most interesting scientific articles, but I really think they'll help your practice, and I think it's worth your time to take a look at them. Excellent. Thank you, Kurt. Speaking of social media, I just want to pass on congratulations from the reproductive Twitter world out there that uh, all tweeted you congratulations when FNS tweeted out your, your new position last week. Again, thank you very much. So before we get to the rest of the original research, we have one more article, this time in the 50 Years Ago Today session. Uh, in another pithy 50 Years Ago Today article, Carpinello and Acherny from the NIH discuss an article from May 1971 by Diasio and Glass, which provided more biologic evidence that contradicted the Shettles method. The Shettles method had purported to be able to choose the sex of your baby by adjusting sexual timing, position, and maybe even the food that one eats. The question becomes, despite 50 years of evidence to the contrary, why does this theory still persist even today? They conclude that, quote, in the case of the Shuttles method, the answer is, well, it worked for us. Patients who believe in the method fail to remember that there's already a 50% chance of having a girl or a boy just by nature. Those who are believers happen to feel they are correct. But they then turn this same thought to us. Quote, the same goes for other theories. Theories that work are in line with what one believes to be true and are easily accepted, while those that contradict are often unaccepted. As always, insightful words from Alan DeCherney, who in his classic fashion turns a basic science sperm paper from 50 years ago and challenges how each of us intellectually process evidence from research studies today. You're right, Mike. I still get patients asking me that all the time in the office. I've also heard the theory about which profession you are and whether that affects whether you're going to conceive a man or a woman. That one's not picked up in this article, is it? No, they didn't cover that. As always, it was short and sweet and uh, insightful and to the point. I think we're going to now move on to the assisted reproduction technology. And Eve, I think you've got the first article for us. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. This is a really interesting article. The title is Utilizing Outcome Data from 1,000 Mosaic Embryo Transfers to Formulate an Embryo Ranking System for Clinical Use. And this was written by Manuel Viati from the Zuvis Fertility Center in California with senior author Santiago Munier from Cooper Genomics. The objective of this study was to determine how the attributes of mosaicism identified during PGTA relate to clinical outcomes and to formulate a ranking system of mosaic embryo transfers for intrauterine transfer. There were seven centers that contributed data for this study, and they defined mosaic embryos as those where the analysis of a trophectoderm biopsy sample showed a profile consistent with mosaicism for one or more genomic regions. Participating centers contributed two data sets for a combined total of 1,000 mosaic embryos used in clinical transfers. The data from 425 mosaic embryos has been previously published, and this study includes data, new data from 575 transfers. Of the 1,000 mosaic embryos, 860 were used in single embryo transfers, and I really wish they limited the analysis to just those uh, in single embryo transfers. The comparison group consisted of 5,561 euploid embryos and clinical outcome data on these transfers. All embryos in this study underwent blastocyst stage PGTA using the same NGS-based platform from Cooper Genomics with subsequent frozen embryo transfer. As we discussed in the non-selection study last month, it's really important to understand the bioinformatics of the reference laboratory and how these data are interpreted. I also think it's really important to understand that the findings from one platform cannot be used to generalize findings to another platform. So in other words, these data that are from Cooper Genomics can only be used to interpret future data from Cooper Genomics and not embryos from Natera or iGenomics or other PGTA laboratories. 
Mosaic type referred to the nature of the chromosomal abnormality, while mosaic level referred to the percentage of aneuploid cells present in the trophecta germ biopsy specimen. So what did they find? First, they found that the incidence of mosaic embryos, again, on this platform, ranged from 11 to 26% of all embryos tested, with an average of 19%. In other words, one in five embryos was found to be mosaic. Furthermore, transfer of embryos in the euploid group resulted in an implantation rate of 57% and an ongoing pregnancy rate per blastocyst of 52%, as I think most of us would expect. What was surprising was that in the mosaic group, implantation rates were 47% and ongoing pregnancy rate per blastocyst was 37%. So still a pretty remarkably high implantation rate and ongoing pregnancy rate. Euclid embryos had implanted had an 8.6% likelihood of spontaneous abortion, whereas miscarriage rate in the mosaic group was 20 to 25%, depending on the type of mosaicism. So what the authors did was they then stratified these 1,000 mosaic embryos and analyzed how the level of mosaicism affected clinical outcomes. As there was a progressive increase in the proportion of aneuploid cells in the mix, there was a statistically significant decrease in implantation and ongoing pregnancy rates for the whole chromosome mosaics, and this was not observed for the segmental mosaics. For those of you who are going to go and actually read the article, I want to call your attention to figure 3B. This really nicely demonstrates the scale of increasing prognosis depending on the type of mosaicism. So I think the big question is, what do we make of these data, and how do we think about mosaicism? Is mosaicism really a problem in the embryos, or is it a problem in the interpretation of the bioinformatics? No doubt the outcomes were worse in mosaic embryo transfer, but I want to call attention again to the ongoing pregnancy rate per blastocyst of 37% in mosaic embryos. This is not insignificant, and to me, it really calls into question the interpretation of the data. And I think this is a perfect example of where a non-selection trial could and should be used to validate the data and to understand whether or not these embryos should be called mosaic or perhaps should they be called normal. There was an excellent reflections to this piece written by Dr. Eric Surrey, where he questions the nature of genetic counseling and informed consent that the parents received. He also discussed the lack of follow-up data regarding pregnancy outcome and the lack of data from either prenatal or postnatal genetic analysis. The investigators state that births from mosaic embryo transfer resulted in, quote, seemingly healthy pregnancies and live births, end quote. However, in the absence of chromosomal analysis of the offspring, one simply cannot arrive at this conclusion. And I think as the utilization of PGT is increasing, the question of mosaic embryos is going to persist. More data are needed to truly understand the meaning of mosaic and the outcomes, and I think, again, better trials using non-selection and validation are so greatly needed. Kurt, Micah, what are your thoughts? Uh, Eve, I echo what, what you're saying. I think those are all great points. My actual follow-up question to you was going to be, I, I don't think what we worry about as clinicians when we transfer a mosaic embryo is yes or no on implantation and live birth. We worry about giving an abnormal child to someone that's going to have significant issues. Uh, did they look at that in this study? Um, but no, so, okay. yeah, no, they didn't look at it. So I think that's, that's, so I agree with you. I agree with you. I think there are two points though. One is that not every IVF center will transfer mosaic embryos. And I think that's problematic. Two are that we really, I, I echo your sentiments. Like until we get karyotypic analysis or microarray, on the offspring of these pregnancies, we really cannot say what the issue is. Like, are the children healthy? And are they mosaic? Or is this uh, an interpretation of data issue? So as a field for IVF, we were first concentrated on success rates. And then, then we started looking at perinatal 
morbidity, you know, what happens in, at birth, you know, birth weight and preterm delivery. And now we're finally looking at the outcome of children. I hope that this doesn't take us another 30 years to work this out, because your question on whether we're um, it's a healthy child or whether there's a potential child with lifelong problems is a, is a hugely important question. I mean, I think that's the crux of the issue, but I, I also really think that the interpretation of the data in what is called normal and what is called mosaic is problematic. And if I were to go out on a limb and predict, my prediction is that this is a bioinformatic issue and not a health of the child issue. And that as the technology and the analysis becomes more um, sophisticated, that the interpretations are going to become more uniform. I just think it seems crazy that one in five embryos is mosaic, but we don't really have one in five humans walking around that are mosaic. Yeah, that's a, that's a point I want to leave this on, too, is that we have been transferring these embryos for generations without knowing their embryo status and whether they're mosaic or not. And it doesn't look like the vast majority of children conceived with IVF have genetic abnormalities. This is really important work that, I, that we're going to need a lot more information on in the future. Well, I'm going to move on to another article in ART. This article tackles an age-old question about the use of prophylactic antibiotic for embryo transfer. It was only about a generation ago that clinicians that started practicing IVF had to make some difficult clinical decisions about what they thought was best practice. So it was envisioned that embryo transfer was an invasive procedure and that could track bacteria through the cervix and into the endometrium, perhaps causing infection, or if not, perhaps altering the ability to conceive due to trauma or inflammation. Well, since then, antibiotics have become um, part of most protocols for embryo transfer, even though it was never really tested to see if it was necessary. So in this day and age, we're trying to minimize medicine and find the minimalist or simplest approach. And there are a number of studies that are challenging some of these practices made um, back in the day in an evidence-based way. So first author Dr. Bashir and senior author Dr. Milky out of Stanford University present a trial entitled Withholding Antibiotics Does Not Reduce Clinical Pregnancy Outcomes of Natural Cycle Frozen Embryo Transfers. This study uses an ecological study design where 125 cases were performed without antibiotic use and compared to another 125 cases that were performed with antibiotic use the year before. Populations were relatively similar and the pregnancy rates were compared with and without logistic regression to control for any imbalances. The authors found that the pregnancy rates, live birth rates, and cumulative pregnancy rates were very similar and not statistically different, therefore concluding that withholding doxycycline does not reduce the success rate, at least not for an unstimulated frozen embryo transfer. Notice how I used unstimulated and not natural there. I've heard many people rationalize necessity for antibiotics beyond the potential of infection, perhaps changes in the vaginal endometrial microbiome, perhaps it decreases inflammation. On the other side, people have suggested that we are using too much antibiotics, and this increases the costs and perhaps creates bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. As a side note, my super intelligent daughter, Caroline, tells me that the problem with antibiotic resistance is not due to medical use of antibiotics, but instead due to the antibiotics that are used in animal husbandry and farming. She's probably right, but I still don't think that we should overuse antibiotics in medicine. As described in a very thoughtful reflection by Dr. Bonus and Bernardi out of Northwestern, they note that it's possible that the antibiotic use for frozen embryo transfer is treating the physician rather than the patient. So this well-done study convincingly demonstrated that perhaps antibiotics are not necessary and that a tailored approach should be used rather than a one-size-fits-all. As described in this reflection, perhaps we need to change our mindset from, hey, this therapy might help and wouldn't hurt, to instead, some therapies might hurt and won't help. Thank you, Kurt. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I actually like seeing negative trials like this that reinforce that more is not always better. And for a, a patient population that's already uh, burdened by high cost and lots of medications, if we can reduce that without causing negative uh, impact, I think that's fantastic. The next section in the ART, it comes from our very own Pietro Bortoletto, who is the media editor for FNS Reports. 
and colleagues from senior authors Rosenwax and Spandorfer at Cornell. They present the study, time from oocyte retrieval to frozen embryo transfer in the natural cycle does not impact reproductive or neonatal outcomes. This study evaluated if FET in the first or second menstrual cycle was associated with outcomes and all of the cycles were natural cycle or unassisted cycle frozen embryo transfers. This was a retrospective cohorts of almost 600 patients. In adjusted models, there were no differences in live birth nor neonatal outcomes when the embryo was transferred in either the first or the second subsequent natural menstrual cycle following ovarian stimulation and egg retrieval. The authors conclude that there's no need for a washout period following ovarian stimulation prior to doing an FET. The commentary from Amir and Hirschfeld Citrin from Chicago notes that delaying FET can cause unnecessary stress for patients. These data are reassuring that there's no benefit to delaying frozen embryo transfer after ovarian stimulation and egg retrieval. The patient should be able to proceed whenever they are ready to proceed. While this data largely confirms what I think the literature already showed, the most impressive thing to me was to see a large practice that does so many natural cycle frozen embryo transfers. A burden to implementing this is often the perceived inconvenience to the practice of scheduling compared to programmed FETs. So the first thing I did after reading this article was call up Pietro and ask him for practical tips on how they do it at Cornell. But this data suggests that natural cycle FET can be routine even in a large clinical practice. Yeah, I would love for you to share some of those tips. We do a fair number of natural cycles, and our physicians love it. Our patients love it even more. And while our lab has been so generous and flexible, I suspect it wreaks havoc on their schedules. I think with all the emerging evidence of the in, uh, improved obstetric outcomes by having a corpus luteum in an unassisted frozen cycle, uh, it's certainly reason to consider this for practices. Think how easy it is for a woman, though. If we can find a way to do a natural cycle or unassisted cycle, frozen embryo transfer, it just takes the medicine out of it. You can just come back in a normal cycle. It just makes it so, so easier to just continue your IVF cycles without the, the, the medical aspects of it. I'm a huge fan, and I will say that when we do, and I will call this a natural cycle because women are actually ovulating, but when we do an unmedicated cycle or a natural cycle, frozen embryo transfer, um, we just use a little bit of vaginal progesterone support, and you avoid, for those centers that are using Lupron, you avoid Lupron, you avoid high doses of estrogen, you avoid intramuscular progesterone. The data have really shown in a retrospective study and then in a randomized controlled trial that IM is better than vaginal in completely supplemented cycles. But in a natural cycle, you probably don't need any luteal support. And it's just so freeing to not be on all those medications. I know. Can you imagine us going backwards and being more simple as opposed to more medicated? This is terrific. I, I love it. No antibiotics. No luteal support and no estrogen. We have our theme for the month, and I think this is fantastic. So I'm going to take us away from the practice of art for a second, and we're going to review two articles from FNS Science. I want to congratulate Bill Catherino for doing a great job with this sister journal, and he's recommended two articles that we're going to briefly review today as a snippet and an enticement for you to um, go look at that journal as well. I'll start with the first one, and this is an article by Dr. Ursoy, who is the first author, and Dr. Markham, senior author, and it's from Sydney and Campertown, Australia. The title of the article is Altered Immune Environment in Peritoneal Endometriosis Lesions Relationship to Lesion Appearance. Look, endometriosis is still a mystery to me. How is it that a woman can have severe endometriosis by ASRM criteria and very few symptoms, and conversely, have severe symptoms and have very small amount of endometriosis visualized by laparoscopy. One issue may be that the ASRM staging may not reflect disease adequately, and that has been hypothesized and that is being looked into. For example, ASRM staging does not take into account what the lesions look like. Some lesions are the classic dark lesions, some are plaque-like white lesions. This study attempts to evaluate the localization and quality of different immune cell populations in these endometriotic lesions. And in this paper, they define them as red, black, and white peritoneal lesions. This is a cross-sectional study evaluating 28 subjects. 
the authors evaluate immunohistological staining for dendritic cells, T cells, B cells, and macrophages in these lesions. This is an elegant study and worth your time to take a look. As described by the authors, this is the first study to characterize immune cell populations in early and late peritoneal lesions. Yes, that assumes that these lesions progressed from red to black to white. This study suggests that this might be true, as they've shown that in early stages, the red and black lesions, they're significantly more likely to be surrounded by immune cell aggregates than the so-called older white lesions. An additional finding is that these immune cell populations and macrophage densities are positively correlated, suggesting that the immune response is activated early and perhaps dissipates over time. As hypothesized, the cells may be initially recruited to attack adjacent lesions and, in fact, can facilitate lesion persistence and promote tissue fibrosis and scarring. This is an interesting hypothesis that does pass the intuition and logic smell test. Of course, these preclinical findings need to be correlated and confirmed with disease and symptoms in clinical studies. This has been proven to be difficult in clinical studies that try to match these severities and symptoms. Perhaps they should take into account the differences in how these lesions look as well. So in summary, this is a nice piece of science. My congratulations to the authors and for FNS Science for attracting this article and publishing such wonderful work. Great, thank you, Kurt. So the second study from FNS Science is called to investigate how endogenously elevated DNA fragmentation alters the human sperm proteome and whether this fragmentation contributes to genomic deletions. It's in FNS Science in May with first author Peeney, colleagues, and senior authors Schoolcraft and Katz Jaffe from the Colorado Center of Reproductive Medicine. This was a research study of men with low DNA fragmentation, defined as 0 to 4 percent, compared to those with high DNA fragmentation, uh, defined as those greater than 15 percent. They looked at both the global sperm proteome in these men as well as SNP genotyping. The authors found 79 differentially abundant proteins in men with elevated DNA fragmentation. Many of these proteins involved markers of oxidative stress, apoptosis, and DNA, DNA repair genes. There was no link between DNA fragmentation and genomic deletions in the SNP array portion of the study. So the authors conclude that developing sperm initiate an active transcriptomal response to endogenous DNA damage. On the clinical side, we continue to investigate what sperm DNA fragmentation means clinically, and more importantly, can we improve outcomes for these men? But this basic science paper uh, looking at the biologic response to DNA damage in sperm highlights exactly the type of uh, translational studies that FNF Science is designed to house and hopefully stimulate future research. Thank you, Micah. Without giving our listeners whiplash, I'm going to go back to more kind of general gynecologic science, which is in this month's Journal of Fertility and Sterility. We have one article in the gynecologic section. This article is by Dr. Zhu and Shi from collaborating institutions in China and should be of general interest to everybody. Vitamin D is a risk factor for the presence of asymptomatic uterine fibroids in premenopausal Han Chinese women. So I've recently seen a number of articles on vitamin D deficiency in uterine fibroids. This is a very intriguing topic, as we all know that fibroids are very prevalent and a debilitating illness for many women. We also know that the cause of fibroids is very likely multifactorial. The etiology is very complex and largely unknown. Now, of course, reproductive steroids such as estrogen and progesterone and growth factors and maybe even genetics play a role. We also know that the prevalence of fibroid is based on race, with a higher prevalence with African-American women. That's what makes this study of particular interest. This is a cross-sectional study of 133 asymptomatic patients with uterine fibroids in comparison to 80 controls in women in China. The main finding is that vitamin D levels in women with uterine fibroids were statistically significant lower than in controls. To give you some perspective, levels were about 11 and 12 in those with fibroids, whereas they were about 17 to 18 in those without. In this study, as we would hope, there was no difference in vitamin D levels and other clinical factors such as BMI, gravity, or parity. 
So the authors suggest a cutoff of around 14 is a threshold for the possibility of a higher risk for fibroids. Of note, this threshold is not very different from papers that I looked up that look at vitamin D in African-American women. So Dr. Islam and Seegers from John Hopkins write a very thoughtful reflection on the topic. They remind us that vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin that likely has multiple effects in the human body, and there are vitamin D receptors in reproductive tissues, including the uterus. So vitamin D can regulate cell proliferation, angiogenesis, apoptosis, and perhaps is also an immune modulator. They get very directly to the point. This is great confirmatory information that vitamin D may be associated with fibroids across different populations, different ethnicities, and different continents. So this clearly begs the question, could we be treating women with vitamin D to reduce the incidence of fibroids and perhaps decrease their size? Some of these trials are actually already underway, but it's complicated by the fact that we don't know if vitamin D replacement is only a benefit for women that are deficient or whether all women will benefit from vitamin D replacement and whether this is actually preventative or whether actually therapeutic. As pointed out by the authors in this reflection, because there is no preventative treatment for fibroids currently, vitamin D could be a low-cost, low-risk option. I really hope that this is true and simply not another association looking for a mechanism. I think it's just a reminder to all of us that we should be eating a balanced diet, getting outside, and getting a little bit of fresh air and sunshine on a daily basis. Well said. We're going to move on from the gynecology section to the infertility section. Karubar Ajahn and colleagues from the University of Toronto present the study Cultural Competence in Fertility Care for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer People, a Systematic Review of Patient and Provider Perspectives. This study is a systematic review designed to characterize the patient and provider perspectives on cultural competency in LGBTQ fertility care. They curated over 1,700 published studies to find 25 that were ultimately included in the systematic review. They found that key barriers seen by LGBTQ patients in obtaining fertility care included gender dysphoria, heteronormativity, stigmatism, and psychological distress. The lack of information tailored specifically to LGBTQ patients was repeatedly voiced as a concern both from patients and by providers. The author concluded that LGBTQ patients face unique barriers in their access to care. They propose solutions that include tailored information, psychosocial interventions, gender-neutral language, and an inclusive intake process. The commentary is from Campo Egelstein and Quinn from the University of Texas and New York University. They make several very interesting observations, but the one that really stood out to me was when they said, quote, Inclusive care means discarding the prevailing option that good doctors treat all patients the same and instead recognize not just the unique needs of non-traditional population, but also the uniqueness of each individual patient. In other words, we must treat the whole person, which means understanding who they are, what their health care goals are, and beyond just their sexual orientation and gender identity. I think this study provides very helpful published data that anyone providing reproductive care should read. The authors give us practical tools that we can use from the published data that's actionable for clinics to ensure they're offering inclusive and culturally competent care. I love that, and I think it is just so important to have a deep understanding of the population of patients that we're caring for. This next study also has to do with um, with the LGBTQ population, and this is called the Stability of Psychosocial Adjustment Among Donor-Conceived Offspring in the U.S. National Longitudinal Lesbian Family Study from Childhood to Adulthood, Differences by Donor Type. And this study was done by first author Nicole Corone from Pavia, Italy, with senior author Henry Voss from the University of Amsterdam. The study evaluated the differences by sperm donor type, anonymous, known donor, open access donor, in psychological adjustment of the offspring using data from the U.S. National Longitudinal Lesbian Family Study. Uh, from here on out, we're going to call that the NLLFS across three time periods from childhood to adulthood. Going back to our definition of dogma, current dogma is that one, 
donor-conceived children should be told of their origin, and two, donor-conceived children will likely want to know of their genetics. This is a truly remarkable study uniquely positioned to challenge that dogma. For those of you not familiar with the NLLFS, it was initiated in 1986 to provide data on the long-term experiences and outcomes of the first generation of donor-conceived offspring and their lesbian parents. The first wave of data collection occurred during IUI treatment or early pregnancy. The NLLFS is one of the first and only studies to examine the influence of sperm donors on offspring psychological adjustment from a longitudinal perspective. The retention rate of this study is 93% over 26 years. The authors hypothesized that offspring with an anonymous donor would show less stability in their psychological adjustment with an increase in behavioral problems over time relative to offspring with a known or an open identity donor. Psychological adjustment was measured using validated behavioral measures. At waves four, when the offspring were age 10, and waves five, when the offspring were age 17, the parents filled out the behavioral checklist. And at wave six, age 25, offspring themselves used a validated self-reporting tool. Interestingly, two-thirds of the offspring with an open identity donor did not contact the donor. The study found that there were no differences in internalizing, externalizing, and total problem behaviors across each developmental stage comparing between the groups of offspring with different donors. These findings are in stark contrast to adoption literature, and the authors concluded that a one-size-fits-all approach based on the assumption that a known or open identity donor is preferred over an anonymous donor lacks empirical support. There was an accompanying reflections to this piece written by Guido Pennings at the Bioethics Institute in Belgium, who stated that he wonders how long we will keep looking for problems. He maintains that we cannot or do not want to believe that these kids are all right. The most important finding from this study is that donor type was irrelevant for the psychological adjustment of donor offspring. I think the study is truly excellent and will serve as a fantastic counseling tool when discussing individual preferences and selection of sperm donors. Wow, Eve, that really is a terrific study. That that really challenges dogma, as you mentioned, and it really provides some terrific evidence for what I guess many people believe, but many people have a hard time demonstrating. Yeah, and I think not only the type of donor, but I, I know that we counsel patients pretty authoritatively that it is best to share the mode of conception um, with the child. And to date, the data really hasn't supported that. Intuitively, I, I think it makes sense, but the studies have not definitively shown that. I think the stigma is less now, and that helps. So I think it's easier for a child to know how they were conceived than feel that there was a secret kept against them. I mean, I think it's fascinating. One of my cousins is a single mom by choice, and she had a daughter using donor sperm, and her daughter at age five would go around telling people how she was conceived, and they have met some of the other um, diblings, which are donor sperm siblings, and I think it's remarkable that at a young age, this girl really understands her origins and understands the genetics and the biology behind it, and it's, it's great to see this next generation of children with just a completely different perspective on what family means. Really very impressive paper, Eve. Thank you for reviewing that. I'm going to stay in the theme with some really fantastic information that's in fertility and sterility about this population and how we treat them, although this article is a little bit more specific. I'm going to review an article by Dr. Hawkins and Dr. Jacoby from the University of California in San Francisco regarding the endometrial findings among transgender and gender non-binary people using testosterone at the time of gender-affirming hysterectomy. So the methods of this paper are not very detailed, but the findings should be of interest. This was a retrospective case series of 81 patients using testosterone therapy prior to hysterectomy. These cases are an opportunity to look at the potential risks of exogenous use of androgens and long-term health with particular attention to the prevalence of endometrial hyperplasia and malignancy among amenorrheic transgender men. 
The finding was that about 40% of subjects had proliferative endometrium, 50% had atrophic endometrium, and about 10% of the population were noted to have polyps. There was no endometrial hyperplasia, no malignancy. On average, those that did have proliferative endometrium were younger. The reflection by Dr. Chrisman and Moravec from Ann Arbor, Michigan, point out how this is really important for clinicians. The majority of transmasculine people use or intend to use gender-affirming hormones in the form of testosterone. The long-term impact of testosterone, including endometrial pathology, is important, and certainly the risk of malignancy should be considered. This helps us understand that the long-term physiological implications of gender-affirming hormone care. Clearly, this is a complex topic. I'm glad we can simplify one aspect of it, which is the safety of some of the hormones that are used. So I want to point out that Micah and Eve, we didn't review every article in this month's Fertility and Sterility. There are some other wonderful articles in categories of fertility preservation, genetics, reproductive science, and also video articles. Just another example and a teaser for you to have to pick up the journal and read it yourself. Any final comments, Mike or Eve? I think so well said, and I just want to give yet another shout out to Michael Simone, who's been instrumental in helping us to produce this podcast. My shout out this month goes to Richard Bronson, who sent me a lovely email about his listening to the podcasts. I'm glad Richard is listening, and if his and my generation continue listening, we are certainly making inroads. And my shout out this month is to all of the FNS Interactive Associates who are out there on Twitter, Instagram, and all the other multimedia platforms uh, promoting all these wonderful articles that we have in fertility and sterility every month. Thank you, everybody. I look forward to talking to you again next month. Please keep reading the articles in Fertility and Sterility, FNS Science, FNF Reviews, and of course, FNS Reports. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.